Hello and welcome everybody to another edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg. We are here on your community radio station. This is Forward Radio, WFMP Louisville, broadcasting here in the historic Hayburn building at 106.5 FM. And we reach you anywhere you are in the world via the internet at forwardradio.org. You can find our live stream there. You can also find podcast versions of all of our programs archived. You can catch up on listening while you are away, uh, or you could check out other programs that you might not be able to hear live all at forwardradio.org and that's the place to go to my friends to become part of our radio community this is a community station uh, it's not just like some smart person thinking up what we're going to put out there it's all of the community coming together to share what's important to us this is radio for the people by the people and we want you to be part of our community at forwardradio.org there's two great ways to do that you can volunteer with us you can pitch us a show uh, maybe you want to do a one-time access hour or a weekly program like this one, uh, or perhaps you don't have time, but you've got a few dollars you can spare. Forwardradio.org is the place to donate to help sustain this station. Keep us on the air. It's only $20 a day. What a steal, but we really cannot do it without you. And we're so grateful to everyone who's contributed recently, and you can become one of them at forwardradio.org. Well, on sustainability now, we tackle the most important issues facing our city for sustainability, and I don't think there's any issue more important than housing and access to equity in housing. We all need a roof over our head and there are so many houseless people and people who are in situations of potential eviction, right, or recently evicted. And that is what we're going to be talking about today as we review the most recent State of Metropolitan Housing Report, the 2020-21 State of Metropolitan Housing Report, which of course you can find online at metropolitanhousing.org. Uh, it's a product of the Center for Environmental Policy and Management at the University of Louisville, which collaborates every year with the Metropolitan Housing Coalition to put this report out. And I am so excited to have all three of the co-authors, not just in a virtual studio with me, but now in person post-COVID, well, we're, post, we're, we're, we're all vaccinated and, and ready to go here in the studio. I've got the three co-authors are Dr. Lorne Heberly, Associate Professor of Sociology and Director of UofL Center for Environmental Policy and Management. Welcome back to Ford Radio, Lauren. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, so good to see you in three dimensions. Uh, Becca Halpern is here too. She's a sociology doctoral student who helped co-author this report. Good to meet you, Becca. Hi, thanks for having me. How far along are you in your doctoral? Are you like nearly done? Or? Um, I just finished my first year, so if I finish my dissertation on time, uh, another two years. <laughs> okay, another two years to go. Whew, keep at it. I know it's there's a there's lights at the end of that tunnel, just like COVID, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And coming up, yeah. It's not always a train coming at you, right? <laughs> and finally, I'm so glad to welcome back into this studio Dr. Kelly Kinahan. She's Assistant Professor of Urban and Public Affairs and Office of Mate of Mine right down the hall at UofL. Welcome back, Kelly. Thank you for having me. It's nice to see you, Justin. Yeah. So we got to cover this report on this show a couple times, but it, it's been a while. It was like 2018, I think, the last time we talked about this. Uh, so, Lauren, give us an overview of this year's report. Report, maybe some. So, what's different about it from previous years? Well, thanks for asking. So, this year, for one, we were interrupted a little bit by COVID. Oh, really? Right. <laughs> um, and so, we did not produce a 2020 report 
as we normally do. Normally, we release a report in November, and this year with COVID, we thought we decided we needed to spend some time taking note of what was happening in our community and how our community was responding to the eviction crisis to and all of that. So we pulled together the 2021 report. So the focus this year has been on the federal, state, and policymakers uh, and, and agencies' response to housing insecurity and COVID. Um, and yeah. that's what we decided we needed to keep track of it, you well, know? good. I mean, because COVID disrupted a lot of things, but it did not mm-hmm. disrupt evictions, right? In fact, it really ramped it up, right? Well, yeah, and I and it made it really hard for folks to stay home and yeah. be safe. People were losing their jobs, businesses were as the economy shut down, people were being laid off. And so helping our city have an appropriate response to that has been has been tough. Yeah, it really seems like mm-hmm. antithetical to the notion of a compassionate city to be throwing people out on the curb in the middle of a pandemic, right? Kelly, I mean, I I sure. saw people I saw that happening on my daily commute to U of L, right? Like, tell us a little bit about what happened with evictions in in Louisville during COVID. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, as Lauren said, the you know, COVID changed everything for for everybody, and you know, being safe and healthy at home was the, were the messages that we were hearing, you know, from the governor. <laughs> Where's um, my home to stay healthy? Exactly, right? exactly. And so, I think one of the most important things that happened around evictions during the pandemic was that we did see a policy change. So, we did see uh, moratoriums enacted at both the state and federal level. Uh, and these were, you know, really critical for helping to keep um, at least some, pe- some people safe and healthy at home and help keep people housed. There were certainly some uh, limitations to those moratoriums. Yeah. So they were specific to non-payment of rent eviction cases. Uh, so there were still people that were being evicted during the pandemic, during certain months of the pandemic in particular, again, as we're facing these challenges of trying to be socially distant and uh, be safe and, and be healthy. But I think that that, that policy changes is one that's important to recognize. I think it's one that just a couple of years ago, nobody thought would ever, you know, even be on the table. Yeah. So wait, I want to back up. What you said, the, the moratoriums were about non-payment of rent. So mm-hmm. clearly there's a lot of other reasons why people might get evicted. Mm-hmm. My mind went to non-payment of mortgage, but there may be all kinds of other reasons, right? Right. So if your um, lease expires, the landlord can can evict you without, you know, giving any other reasoning. Uh, or if you're um, in violation of a, of a section of your lease, your, your landlord can evict you for those reasons. So for those cases, there really wasn't any protections for rent that were facing those challenges. And we know from some of the research that we've done and that other scholars and and sort of other local activists have done as well, that landlords will sort of use those other reasons as a tool to evict folks, um, even if it may indeed be for non-payment of rent cases. So there's, you know, they they will often sort of wield that as, as kind of a power tool in their favor. And was there money as part of the relief packages to help cover some of this rent? Yes. Yeah, there was. Absolutely. So that was the other major change that we saw and which was critically important. So there was vastly expanded rental assistance. So funding coming from uh, the federal government through the CARES Act, through some of the other uh, stimulus bills. And so that was really critically important for, again, keeping people housed, uh, making payments uh, to landlords to, to cover back rent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we saw some of those programs and, you know, they really did make a, an important difference. And we did see actually in some of the 
uh, analysis of the eviction data that we did, that evictions were were down in 2020 because of the moratorium and because of this expanded rental assistance. So we saw about a 62% decline in eviction eviction filings overall from 2019 to 2020. So in past years where the eviction rate in Louisville, the eviction filing rate has been like around 14%. This year we saw it decline to about 5.4%. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. That Well, I guess I could feel good about that. But uh, And there it, it wasn't just federal help, too. I mean, there were, there were some other creative sort of more grassroots strategies to help people avoid evictions. I know Black Lives Matter was organizing around that, for right? Sure. Mm-hmm. What, what are some of the you know efforts that should be highlighted for keeping people in their homes in a, in a crisis like this? For sure. I mean, I would say the, the Black Lives Matter housing team has really been at the forefront um, of a lot of that just on the ground work. Um, and, and, you know, they, you know, kind of shined a light on that and, and have done some really great work on yeah. um, the some of the other groups that I would say is the uh, the Louisville Rapid uh, Access Network. So they were the group that created um, StopMyEviction.org. Yeah, so this was okay. sort of a centralized website where folks could go if they were facing eviction to sort of streamline that process of being able to access the resources that were available for rent or for utilities. And so I think that that was a really important thing that happened locally that was, you know, tailored to, again, trying to face this this eviction crisis that we were in and making sure that those resources uh, were getting out to folks. Hmm. Okay, good. Yeah, because I guess... It- the solution might not just be money. It might be legal help or, you know, mm-hmm. other, other temporary help that people need. Um, so, I mean, these moratoriums are coming to an end, right? Is it on June 30th? Yeah, June 30th. It's, and I do not expect it to be extended. Wow. I, I, I can't. Given that they are also the feds are also trying to reestablish uh, work requirements for unemployment insurance and things like that. You know, I think that they're they're not going to be willing to step in at this point to expand that federal moratorium. Some state I've heard there are some localities that are extending it for themselves. Some states I've I've seen some reports about that, but that's spotty. Mm. Louisville could do that, for yeah, instance, yeah. right? Yeah, we could. <laughs> uh, I guess I mean. People are returning to work. P- people's household financial situations may be a little less precarious than they were, uh, you know, a year ago. But I guess it's kind of a scary time. We might be facing a cliff here as, as this moratorium gets lifted. Um, so, I mean, let's talk about work and how that relates, Becca, to uh, and unemployment payments. Um, what do we learn about the importance of unemployment insurance payments uh, and the process by which those payments are are distributed. I mean, the pandemic was a great lesson for that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Unemployment payments are critical um, for people to begin to pay for, you know, basic necessities of food, water, clothing, and shelter. And I say begin and not afford because for many people, unemployment isn't enough to cover the cost of these basic necessities. And it is specifically designed that way. Without any unemployment boost, the average unemployment benefit in Kentucky only covered about 46% of weekly wages. Um, And with- Can you imagine? Yeah, and (laughs) with the current $300 boost, only about 86% of weekly wages are covered. Wow. And while there were moratoriums on utility disconnections and evictions, people still owe their mortgage, rent, and utility payments in full. And so in Jefferson County, nearly 23% of 
owner-occupied households with a mortgage are cost-burdened, uh, meaning that more than 30% of their household income is spent on housing costs. Um, right, and okay. we talk about that in our home ownership and affordability section of our report. Um, we don't know what proportion of those homeowners um, were or are still unemployed, and we don't have that cost burden figure for renters. But imagine the kind of debt that people are getting into when they spend more than a third of their household income on housing, and then their income is cut by over half, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I also wanted to clarify that when I say there were eviction and disconnection moratoriums, that's because like we talked about the eviction uh, moratorium ends June 30th and the CDC has not you know, stated yet whether that's going to be extended. Um, and the LG&E utility moratorium also ends um, at the end of this month. Oh my gosh, yeah, we didn't even talk about utilities, right. So is it, is it the case that people did not get their utilities cut off during the pandemic to, or was it still happening for it was reason. not supposed to happen okay. and I, I don't i haven't heard of anyone any reports of that happening okay. there may have been a few here and there at the beginning um and i think that that's i think that's true but those were all reinstated pretty quickly but it's not like the bills were paid off and people right. are free and clear right. now Correct. now now they're facing hefty bills for their current consumption but also what they weren't able to cover well they're out of work right Mm -hmm. Right. They can apply for assistance and for um, they can apply for help. Right. lg &E has a program set up and some of that is federal money coming in to help okay. um, alleviate that. Um, the water company has a similar program. Um, you can um, get that. But the but the um, announcements for potential disconnection and late fees that's the other thing that was held right. back they couldn't implement late fees during the moratorium and now they can those have been reinstated again so we are looking at a dangerous moment when folks are not going to be able to pay there are resources folks can apply to get those back um, bills taken care of, but it's cumbersome mm -hmm. and it doesn't those. And one of the things that I, I'll, I'll hand off back off to Becca about the unemployment insurance, like the eviction support and the rental assistance, it goes directly to that goes directly to the landlord. The uh, utility payments go directly to the utility providers, not to the person. Oh, who, okay. To, who, you know, in order to it's pay not a pass it, through, right? Yeah, okay. It's not a pass that way can i just ask if people go to stopmyeviction.org will they get information about the utility assistance as well so i haven't looked at their page recently right now when i went to look at it earlier today i did see a bit they're they're more concerned about folks who are going to be called brought into court right so if you have right, a court date right. set up if something's been filed against you they want to make sure that those folks are, are are getting their resources the other places on the city's website for the department of Ho housing and for the department of Resilience and Community and Services. Resilience and Community Services. Everybody changes their name. Yeah, so I know, I know. <laughs> um, their website is also set up for you to be able to link in, and and there is there is a link there for the utility for the LG and E services. The water company one, though, I think is directly on the water company's website. And the utility companies mm -hmm. aren't going to take you to court. They're just going to cut your cut your utilities right right <laughs> so and the other thing that uh, we haven't done a lot of research on recently is the impact of utilities cutting off 
um, even if the landlord is paying you for your utilities, if the landlord goes into foreclosure oh. or if the landlord isn't paying the utilities, right. you can get kicked out. They can shut, you know, you, you can get evicted or you get, get kicked out oh. at that point as well. Man. Uh, we're talking about the state of metropolitan housing. The new 2020-21 report has just come out. You can find it online at metropolitanhousing.org. I'm so excited to have the three co-authors of the report in the studio live with me right now. You just heard from Dr. Lauren Heverly. She's Associate Professor of Sociology at UofL and Director of our Center for Environmental Policy and Management. Becca Halpern is here, Sociology doctoral student who is in on this report, and Dr. Kelly Kinahan. Assistant Professor in Urban and Public Affairs. Uh, Becca, I don't know if you were able to look up what you wanted to look up, but I've been meaning to ask you um, about, is is your doctoral work about housing specifically and other issues as well as what's in this report? No, my doctoral okay. work is not. It's very different from oh, this. Oh, wow. <laughs> this is good. She has many talents. Yeah. Very talented. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Interesting. All right. You don't have to share that on this show if you don't want to. <laughs> yeah. So we did an inventory of all the major sources of assistance that are available to Louisville residents during COVID-19. And that inventory shows that, you know, most forms of assistance was paid directly to entities instead of the person needing the assistance. Um, So programs paid landlords, um, utility companies, uh, and like grocery stores through gift cards, um, you know, on behalf of these people, instead of saying, okay, you know, you lost your job, this is your income, you attest your rent is this much money, here is that amount of money to pay your rent. Um, And that really stems from this value that we seem to have that poor people, you know, aren't trusted to spend assistance correctly. Oh, right. (laughs) And ultimately what happens, you know, from that approach was that it took a very long time between when people were approved to receive assistance um, and when their assistance was actually received by the entity that it was going to. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's not even taking into account the amount of time needed to be approved for that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Which is a whole other separate um, separate thing. Um, and so, you know, unemployment, going back to that a little bit, on the other hand, that, you know, is paid biweekly and recipients had agency to use that in ways that best address their unique situation. Sure. Um, so we found that that was a big difference um, between unemployment and all these other sorts of programs that were going on. Huh. So, I mean, I'd love to, us to turn a little bit to like sort of the policy implications for what we learned during COVID. I mean, is that is that sort of one of them maybe that then uh, thinking about how the payments are routed really matters? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that related to, you know, these financial support programs, reducing barriers to recipients getting um, the assistance directly, that that's huge. Um, trusting the recipients to be able to best address their situation, you know, individually um, is another related um, sort of lesson that we can take away. Um, 
And with that, I think really recognizing that our existing social safety nets, which aren't really designed for these mass crises like COVID, right, mm, are, right. as of what we have now, the best system that we have to address these mass you know, crises um, and the value that they provide by helping keep members of our communities healthy and safe. And I think that recognizing that means that we have to stop defunding and dismantling these programs. Mm -hmm. um, we have to bolster them. We have to make them stronger. Um, you know, what's happened to unemployed Kentuckians isn't acceptable, um, but it's certainly proof of what advocates have been saying would happen as a result of defunding. Um, and I think that, you know, knowing that, seeing this prove it's irresponsible and inexcusable for this to happen again. Yeah. You know, I think I feel like this pandemic was such a real lesson in the importance of the social safety net, not just because we knew so many people were hurting, but, you know, there's this common, uh, it's such an American ideal, this individualism that, well, that's somebody else's problem, you mm -hmm. know, and often in like normal times, we'd say, well, if we don't help people who are in desperate situations, they might be, you know, forced into crime or something, right? And you don't mm -hmm. want crime. So, but then they'd say, well, if they were good people, they wouldn't be criminal. You know, like there's always ways to talk about it. But here's a pandemic where the thing we need people to do is stay at home and not go into crowded working situations. And if we're evicting people on the streets, it's very clear that that is going to make the pandemic worse and that may kill you or your grandmother because they're going to get the virus, right? So these social safety nets have really been frayed long before COVID ever yeah. came around, right? Like we've we've really reduced them. And I, something that keeps popping in my mind during this conversation is that it seems like almost all of the, f the help is coming from the federal government. What about the state and in metropolitan government here in Louisville? Were there any resources at all available for these kinds of social safety nets? Well, Louisville, before the feds got their act together to get money flowing we did have some local response um and and funds set up where um local philanthropists and others created the louisville one fund mm -hmm. and that was direct money into the hands of folks who needed it um you you could apply for that um it went out pretty quickly um there were other structural things people were doing to revamp some of the um, existing rental assistance programs to try to figure out how to get it um, less cumbersome. Hmm. But that was hard, right? Yeah. Um, we They also started putting into the, you know, so it was an evolving thing over the year, right? You know, when it first happened, people were, had to get their feet on the ground to figure out what, what can we do. People, a lot of people wanted to do things. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of really good hearted and um, really well intentioned folks within local and state government trying to figure out how do we how do I work around this arcane system that is often um, that way because of federal guidelines for how to spend federal money that flows through the oh, state yeah. and local agencies mm -hmm. and Louisville isn't it get often for some of the these monies it it comes directly to Louisville. Sometimes it comes through the state and then to Louisville. And so it's a, those, those pathways are, are very cumbersome. You know, we had Marilyn Harris in the city. She needed to circumvent the time when she knew of somebody who was going to be evicted, came through the course where an eviction was filed, getting the check from the city to the landlord. Yeah. 
she bypassed the normal process because it would take 30 days. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And, the, you know, they had to route the money through Cincinnati's check writing service <laughs> or what have you, right? So she was getting money. She was driving checks around the city wow. to get them into place early, in early times, right? I'm not yeah. sure what she's doing now, if that's still happening. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, some having someone who is working at the in the city making that kind of effort, regardless of what we think about, you know, the structure of how the funds are coming either directly, you know, that's yeah. a, a bigger policy question. But there were so many people who were trying to make sure that money was getting where it needed to be in order to keep people in their homes and mm-hmm. stable. And it was hard. It was people, they worked really hard. Yeah. Yeah. I would just say that the, you know, the scale of the crisis that we were facing and still are facing in many ways, it really requires a response from the federal government. And that's really, you know, where that response should be, you know, that should be the the focal point of it, at least. But one of the changes that we did see locally, you know, in response to the current eviction crisis, and, you know, Louisville has really had a very high eviction rate for, for many years. And it's something just in the past couple of years as um, Eviction Lab nationally has sort of ramped up and um, has has kind of uh, shown a spotlight on that, that that policymakers have started to think about and, and respond to. And one of the policy changes that we did see um, locally was the creation of a, of a new ordinance to provide um, legal counsel for families that are facing eviction. So that was a that's a big change, uh, a really important change, um, a way in which to help keep families housed um, or at least help to keep evictions off of their records so that that's not a barrier when they're, you know, trying to find housing uh, into the future. So I would just say that that's a, you know, an important local policy change that has happened very recently. Hmm. And of course, I mean, we haven't even talked about who's getting evicted, but, and I'm sure you don't have the numbers right in front of you, but I mean, in this process of eviction in Louisville must, I would assume, right, it's overrepresented in people of color, mm-hmm. handicapped, single mothers, like all the usual suspects for marginalized populations, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, that, so that's the one thing we saw when we looked at the data that didn't change, right? So we did see a change in terms of just the scale of evictions, um, but the location where evictions were occurring were still, we still saw very similar patterns to what we saw uh, in the past. So absolutely, it tends to be uh, disproportionately affect uh, black households, low-income households, disabled households, yeah. uh, single single-parent households. Um, so all of those, you know, kind of other challenges associated with uh, with poverty, you know, are kind of uh, rolled up into that. And and it's certainly, um, you know, that that kind of housing precarity challenge disproportionately affects those groups. And eviction, I've never gone through it, thank goodness. But I can imagine this is not like moving, right? This is a real this just cause cascading effects on people's lives, right? Like people yes. may lose their jobs, they may lose their children, right? Like talk about some of that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think the 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 trauma that's just involved in, in a process like that is um I think it's really hard hard for people to understand un- unless you've actually been through it. Um, and I would just, you know, point to the work of uh, the Root Cause Research Center yes. and their Louisville Eviction Lab project. You know, they've really, again, done some fantastic research and, you know, just trying to tell the, the stories and the narratives along with, with the data side of things as well of just, you know, what that experience is like and the the elements of trauma that are associated uh, with with persons experiencing evictions. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll be sure to put a, a link to that, the Root Cause Research Center uh, uh, Louisville Elic- Eviction Lab mm-hmm. in the program notes on the podcast version of this program. And when, we, when we're talking about evictions, I mean, the Root Cause Research Center popped in my mind because I was looking at their story map about Smoketown mm-hmm. uh, and the Smoketown Hope Box Project and, like, just the map of where the evictions are just on this you know, couple blocks of Breckenridge Street in Smoketown. I could not believe, like, one house had, like, 12 evictions in this period. It's just un. un- uh, unfathomable to me I, I, how frequent it is. I would also clarify that some of the maps um, that we see in the and and what we also try to do is to make a distinction between the eviction filing and the actual setouts. Right, right. And so we and the filings are what we have a pretty good data on, and it's the setouts that we don't have great data on. Mm-hmm. And there and and so the ways in which the courts manage that, and Kelly can speak to the um, efforts to um, improve access access to that kind of data going forward is pretty important. But the filings are, even if someone doesn't get set out from a filing, if they, you know, um, landlords use the filing uh, and especially some of the larger corporate landlords as just part of everyday process, right? If you're five days late with paying your rent, they've got a lawyer who's going to take the group for that apartment building and file an eviction Mm. notice for, you know, file eviction on on you for that. And so what the the filing stays with your record. And so if you, it's, it's not just about, even if you've paid your rent and you get back in good with your your landlord or something else happens, you know, you're not, you've still got that on your record. Mm -hmm. And so that gets used against you if you try to move somewhere else. So then you're also become, um, you folks can become locked into where they currently are because they're not going to get another lease with someone else with an eviction filing on them. So they may not actually leave, but they've got the filing on their record. So it's a it's a really it's a really ugly system mm. that is not set up to protect renters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, the the utility cutoff situation is not a legal one. Does that mean we don't have publicly available data about when that happens when utilities get cut off? The data that we've had access to, you can so you can request that data from LGE, for instance. You oh, know, really? it's they'll, it's okay. they'll they'll give it to you. But the reason we get have been getting access to it is because the the rate cases. Um, oh, when really? LGE files for a, you know with the Public Service Commission to increase your rates or to implement X, Y, or Z or whatever that they have to get permission from PSC uh-huh. for, you know, all, all the advocates and then go in and say, give us the data for uh-huh. the, you know, and they can ask for very specific sure. kinds of information. And so for the last two years, there's been a rate case going on. And so we've been able to get data about all of lg and yeah. um, uh, customer base and we can compare it to the commercial for instance for the commercial you know and and um it's been a struggle to get the geo um get it by zip by zip code or by census tractor or what have you that's been a challenge and that would be nice to make sure they're doing it that way and and thus we also can't look at racial disparities right. in in any coherent fashion with that either it becomes difficult and lgd has that information 
Well, I want to ask you more about how this report was pulled together, but mm -hmm. let me quickly reintroduce mm -hmm. you all. If you're just tuning in, we're here on Sustainability Now talking about the state of metropolitan housing with the new report out for 2021. You can find it at metropolitanhousing.org. And right now we're talking with the three co-authors from UofL, Lauren Heberly from the Sociology Department uh, and, and grad student or doctoral student Rebecca Halpern, as well as Kelly Kinahan from the Urban and Public Affairs Department. Uh, so how else was the the information for this report assembled and and was the fact of the pandemic a barrier for even putting the report together this year oh that's such a great question um you know every year we have a different way of pulling it together a lot of the data that we do for that we use or we interpret um comes from the census data okay. and, and and that so we use the acs data for 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 a lot of our demographic information the, the 2020 census data is not out yet is it some of it is, um, but that is not, the ACS is different. It's more detailed. Um, the 20, the decennial census is not what we would use anyway for this okay. necessarily. We might, we would use it for certain things, population, uh, certain kinds of things we, we may end up using it for, but it doesn't get into the detail that the ACS gets into. Um, it can help us confirm a few things here and there. Mm. Um, and we are certainly looking at yeah. what that's going to how we're going to use it yeah. right kind of going forward but the um i think Ke kelly can speak to the eviction data mm -hmm. collection piece that's but that was that that process was really interesting and it's an ongoing question um getting data from our local organizations was the folks have always been really helpful mm -hmm. with us um and really generous with their time even during the pandemic so for the sections where we're talking about um, subsidized housing, the Louisville Metropolitan Housing Authority, LMHA, um, has always um, been really helpful. And a lot of that data is available to the public in their annual reports as well. So okay. we're sifting through those kinds of reports from other agencies as well. And then we'll go confirm whether or not we think, you know, is, is this correct or is it, you know, do you have an update for us or what have you. We want to remain critical and hold agency right. allow the community yeah. to hold agencies accountable yeah. but we also know that a lot of these agencies are there to provide services for our most um for 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 things everybody needs yeah. um and so it's a it's an important relationship to build that way and becca were you one of the people sifting through those annual reports or was there any in-person interviewing kind of stuff happening um, we did have some virtual interviews. We didn't do any in person um, just because COVID was um, yeah, in yeah. full swing at the time and we didn't have a vaccination for quite a while. Um, but yeah, I was sifting through reports. Um, I even went to the council minutes that you can find online and I'd go through their entire um, meeting and online they had the attachments to things that people bring in. So um, if uh, LGNE did some sort of presentation that presentation was attached so i'd be looking through that and trying to find numbers right. and things like that to bring it all together right. to get a full picture yeah 
Kelly, anything to add about the eviction data? Yeah, so the eviction data was, I think, is an, an important change for, for this year's report. So this is really the first year that we we had sort of local eviction data that oh, was really? available to us to analyze. So in past years, we've been relying on um, national data sets from, uh, from the eviction lab. So wow. uh, there was a data sharing agreement that was executed between Louisville Metro government and the administrative office of the courts. Um, and I believe the Root Cause Research Center again, played an important role in some huh. of that as well. Um, so making that data that's coming through the courts available to uh, researchers like us so that we could look at trends and um, make comparisons from 2020 to past years, uh, which are some of the things that we did uh, in the report. And to be able to uh, to do that analysis at a level, um, you know, so this is address level information, so we really can understand uh, some of the details and some of the nuance right. on what's happening. Um, in terms of eviction filings, and again, make those comparisons uh, to past years. And so that information um, will be available moving forward. Um, we know that Metro government's working on um, an eviction portal. Can you say that? Oh, really? Yeah. So we we have a we got a, an agreement directly with Metro with U of L to get have access to a portal that they've built through their agreement with the Office of the Courts. Mm -hmm. And so you know Metro needs that information in order to reach out to folks. Yeah. And to serve them. Yeah. So they have eviction prevention programs. They have other things. So they need to know who's in court. They yeah. need to know what's been filed, and they also need to know how to target services that they're using. So that it's it's a, a direct need for government service to have that information in a timely fashion hmm. um, and for and because the folks who were doing that value the MHC report and value the kind of work that uh, folks at UofL have been doing around eviction. They also helped us develop a process, and anybody can go through the process. It's not just for UofL, okay. right? Okay. So we develop, we do have a memorandum of agreement or yeah. um, with them, so any researcher at UofL can then sign up and you know go through the process for getting access to this portal. Um, the portal is is still complicated because it's not exactly you know it relies on the data that the office the the administration administrative office of administration the courts. Mm -hmm. yeah. office of the courts provides and and i think this will incentivize i hate that word um, <laughs> them to provide more accurate and better data right. because other people are using it yeah, that right makes sense. they had been keeping track of it in their own way for their own purposes right, right, right. and not for not for research purposes research for sure. or yeah. you know tracking purposes mm -hmm. it was really just about you know who what cases where and in mm -hmm. what status mm -hmm. you know and so I think that that this this so there lets should be them some say, more transparency. Around we have we have we're, we're certainly going to be asking yeah, for it. That's good. for sure. And and I would just add, you know, some of the things that we observed with the eviction data locally in Louisville are are things that are happening in other cities as well. Yeah, we're so not they've encountered similar, you know, sort of inaccuracies or missing data and things like that. So mm. it's it's fairly common with mm. with that kind of eviction data. I think it's common with a lot of court data, mm -hmm. right? For sure. Right? I For think sure. courts yeah. have not have haven't been, you know, they there and there's a there's a balance to protecting privacy sure. mm -hmm. and but also making things easy for public 
uh, access. And for understanding you know? equity impacts, for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, we're, we're nearing the end of our time together. We've got five more minutes, and I want to touch on some other, uh, other things before we go. 2020 was not just a big year for pandemics, but it was also the Louisville 2020 Fair Housing Ordinance. What is that and why is that so important? So that was something that we were really excited about. Um, it was a huge win for improving access to safe, fair, and Yay. affordable housing in Louisville. So what you're talking about is the amendment to Louisville's Fair Housing Ordinance that went into effect in December of 2020. This amendment means that landlords in Louisville can no longer use homeless status, prior military service, conviction, and arrest history, with some exceptions, or Mm. source of lawful income Mm. as valid reasons to deny renter application. Is that right? So this means, uh, you know, highlighting the source of income status means they can't, a landlord can't say that they don't take Section 8 vouchers. Right, right. They can't say child support doesn't count towards Mm. your income. Mm. They can't say alimony or Social Security can't count towards your income, right? And it's important. Sounds like that was a common practice. I see rent signs (laughs) for rent. You know, you walk around the neighborhood and you can see for rent signs that say no Section 8 Mm -hmm. and no cats, Mm -hmm. right? Or, you know, or, or no dogs. But that it's 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 like in that little list, right? They can right? still say that, right? No cats. Right, but they can no longer say that. And I'll tell you right now, when we look at maps that show where residents live who use Section Eight vouchers, we find that they're concentrated in West Louisville, and we know that no Section Eight has also been used to veil a, a veiled way to say no black tenants welcome. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so this is no longer an option in Louisville, and I wow. think it's a it's one step further to improve renter location choice. And it it remains to be seen if this is going to change where we see Section 8 vouchers being accepted across the city. So if I if I see a sign like that still like this says we don't take Section 8, I don't call the cops. What do I do? So I would call MHC. I would okay. also call the Kentucky Equal Justice Center. Ah. And I would call Legal Aid. I might call the ACLU. Oh, okay. Um, it, I'll be interested to see yeah, exactly. who takes who this takes on. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Huh. I'm certainly interested in keeping track of it and figuring out how does it go away. Do they find another way? Right. Yeah. What's the next way? Yeah. What's the next way of saying? Was this? It would. It would mm-hmm. also be the Human Rights Commission. Yes. I think is the Terrence. has the local responsibility What's for, Terrence, for fair last housing. Name? Terrence, Terrence Sullivan. Sullivan. He's yes. a programmer here on Forward Radio and just upstairs here in the Hayburn Building. Well, hey there, Terrence. <laughs> yeah. So that would be another place okay. to mm-hmm. yeah, good to idea. highlight that. Absolutely. Great. All right. And the last thing I want to talk about too, the other big thing that 2020 I heard lots of buzz about was our land development code. And there's been a big revision process. I know we don't have much time left, but do you want to briefly talk about that? Maybe what some of the bright spots or wins are there? Sure. Yeah. So this is this is a major undertaking, I would say, for for Louisville Metro government. So the land development code or the zoning code is basically what regulates changes to land use or the other forms of the of the built environment. Um, it's a huge document. This is a you know sort of very big, comprehensive uh, review that is is underway and has gotten started by Louisville Metro government. And you know, in terms of fair and affordable housing, one of the things that we you know it's one of the 
constant barriers that we're up against um, is oftentimes zoning. Um, so nearly 75% of the land in Jefferson County is uh, zoned for single family homes only, mm. right? So you can't build anything else on that parcel of land not a duplex, not a triplex, not a quadplex, not a smaller um, Nothing affordable. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so that's a really important barrier for affordable housing, for housing choice, uh, for fair housing. Um, so some of the changes that are being proposed are making those changes to allow increased density to hopefully move away from um, so much single family zoning across Jefferson County and combining those changes with other kinds of tools that will ensure that new units are affordable would really go a long way to addressing the affordability gap uh, that we see here. In our transportation problems, we can't have a decent transportation system without density either, Absolutely. right? <laughs> Absolutely. So the sustainability connections, just we could spend a whole nother show just talking about that. For but sure. No, I appreciate you hitting some highlights there. I, oh man, I wish we had more time, but I do want to thank you all uh, for doing this important work every year. I mean, you had a little gap year there. That was kind of nice, but <laughs> Uh, you know, it, it's. I know it's a big pile of work every year, but it's so important for us to keep our finger on the pulse of fair housing in Louisville. So um, thank you so much for doing it and for taking the time to join me today. This was great. Thanks so much for having us. We really appreciate it. It's lovely to be here. Great. Thanks. All right, Becca, I look forward to hearing more about your graduate work sometime later, uh, but we are all out of time here on uh, Sustainability Now. Stay tuned, though. We've got your community action calendar coming up in just a minute with lots of ideas for how you can get, get, get engaged in sustainability this week. So uh, get your pencils sharpened and your calendars out and stay tuned, my friends. with me, Justin Mogg, enjoying the sweet sounds of Apple Latin. Want to give thanks to them, many much praise to them for giving us permission to use their local music on the podcast versions of our programs, which you can find archived anytime you want to catch up on a local show you've been missing or hear it again or share it with a friend. Just go to forwardradio.org, and that's the place to also become a part of our community radio station. If you want to learn more about Apple Latin, go to applelatin.com. Well, get your pencils sharpened and your calendars out. This could be the week for you to get engaged in sustainability, my friends. One announcement before we get to the calendar. Free electric fan distribution has begun for older adults and those with disabilities. It started June 21st and appointments are required in advance. Fans are distributed on a first-come, first-served basis. But thanks to the generosity of local businesses, community organizations, and residents, hundreds of electric fans have been collected to provide 
provide heat relief to for older adults and people with disabilities. Of course, fans are one of the most energy efficient ways of keeping cool. To qualify for a free fan, you must be 60 or over or have a documentation of a disability verified by a physician. This is for residents of Jefferson, Oldham, Henry, Shelby, Spencer, Trimble, or Bullitt counties. You have to have proof of address and age, and only one fan will be given out per household, and the household must not have functional central air conditioning. So this is really to help out those who don't have cooling in their home. Qualified individuals were able to call one of the sites below that I'll mention in a minute for information and instructions on how to receive a fan, but distribution begins today, Monday, June 21st, and appointments again are required in advance. The locations include First Neighborhood Place, Cane Run Neighborhood Place, South Central Neighborhood Place, Ujima Neighborhood Place, South Jefferson Neighborhood Place, Bridges of Hope Neighborhood Place, Kipta and Tri-County Community Action Agency for Henry, Oldham, and Trimble Counties, and Multipurpose Community Action Agency in Bullitt, Shelby, and Spencer Counties. You can call any of them now and make an appointment to come get a free electric fan if you meet those qualifications. All right, coming up this week, you can join Food in Neighborhoods and their co-host, Beloved Community, for three upcoming events at which they will be making the case for significant funding for an equitable and resilient local food system right here in Louisville. It starts on Tuesday, June 22nd from noon to 1.30, and the topic will be, Is Food a Human Right? Food Justice and Food Access in Louisville. Continues the following Tuesday, the 29th, also at noon, on What Makes a Food System Secure and Equitable? Land, Water, Infrastructure, and Urban Agriculture. These two food justice learning labs will lead up to a food justice reckoning forum taking place on July 7th at 2.30, at which you will hear from food-related business people, urban food producers, food policy activists, and other community members. In addition to inviting Metro Council members, Food in Neighborhoods is inviting mayoral candidates and some Metro government staff to the forum. So again, coming up this week, Tuesday, June 22nd, from noon to one with an additional half hour of conversation that's optional uh there it's free there's no registration necessary and the topic is is food a human right the pandemic revealed the vulnerabilities of our food system with empty shelves shortages and mile-long lines at food banks the loss of five groceries right here in downtown louisville has added to a long history of food injustices creating a virtual food apartheid in our city this learning lab coming up on tuesday co-sponsored by food and neighborhoods will feature people who are creating ways to ensure that everyone can eat well. Panelists will include Mike Jackson, owner of Kentucky Greens Company, Rana Kumar, chef and co-founder of Feed Louisville, and Karen Moskowitz, executive director of New Roots, with moderators Layla Hodges from the Food Literacy Project and Andrew Kang Bartlett from the Food in Neighborhoods Community Coalition. It will all be online. You can either join through Zoom or via Facebook Live. Either way, just go to facebook.com slash F-I-N Louisville. That's Food in Neighborhoods. So facebook.com slash F-I-N Louisville for the Tuesday, June 22nd, Noon is Food a Human Right Learning Lab. Coming up on Wednesday, June 23rd in Washington, D.C., it is a moral march on Mansion and McConnell. June 21st will kick off 365 days of fighting forward to the National Poor People's March in Washington in June. 
June of 2022, and the Poor People's Campaign is getting started now. On Wednesday the 23rd, they'll be bringing their moral march on Manchin and McConnell directly to D.C. alongside leaders of the Kentucky and West Virginia Poor People's Campaigns. And they are asking everyone in the region to meet us in D.C. They've got buses leaving from West Virginia, Kentucky, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Ohio, and New York. Buses are free of charge and will follow COVID safety protocols. Senator Manchin's position on the filibuster is hurting West Virginians of all races, genders, and religions, and especially the 710,000 poor and low-income people in West Virginia. If you can't get on the bus, you can call his office and let him know that you stand with the people in West Virginia who are calling for living wages of at least $15 an hour, guaranteed health care, housing, and an urban infrastructure plan that meets all of our needs. The manipulations and tactics like those like Manchin and McConnell and the ruling wealthy elite call for a mass movement of poor and low-wealth people and their allies demanding a third reconstruction. We are that movement. Learn more and register for a seat on the bus to D.C. at Facebook.com slash Kentucky PPC. That's the Poor People's Campaign. Facebook.com slash Kentucky PPC. Also coming up on Wednesday at 10 a.m., it's the continuation of the Jefferson County Cooperative Extension's free virtual spring classes. Coming up this Wednesday, the 23rd, the topic is common plant diseases, what to look for. On the 30th, it'll be composting, and on July 7th, it'll be scouting for bad insects. Call if you have any questions at 502-569-2344 or find the link to register at facebook.com slash jeffersoncoextension. Extension. That's Jefferson CO Extension. All right, now on Friday, June 25th, from noon to 6 p.m., the Louisville Community Grocery will be holding a fresh Friday pop-up at the Joshua Tabernacle Baptist Church on 15th Street, just north of Muhammad Ali Boulevard. Pop-up shops bring fresh produce, local products, and Louisville Community Grocery swag to local venues. We bring friends, families, and farmers together to meet our neighbors, to improve food access, and to learn how to better serve each neighborhood as we build a community owned cooperative grocery fresh friday pop-up shops are your opportunity to support the development of this community-owned cooperative grocery right here in downtown louisville while picking up treats such as fresh produce grown by local farmers or otherwise made locally and louisville community grocery t-shirts and shopping bags pop-ups will also feature cooking demos and a chance to get all of your questions answered about cooperative ownership the june pop-up on friday from noon to six will feature fresh veggies healthy living tips cooking demos louisville jazz initiative and a little free pantry installation get all the deal details at louisvillecommunitygrocery.com or facebook.com slash louisville community grocery which is coming out noon to six on friday the 25th at the joshua tabernacle baptist church on 15th street at ali now, this weekend, Saturday, June 26th, it is the Kentucky Environmental Leadership Institute. Environmental Justice 101 is the topic. It'll be online from 10 a.m. to 2.30 this coming Saturday. The Kentucky Resources Council is proud to present the Kentucky Environmental Leadership Institute workshop for beginner environmental activists. This year, they'll be hosting three sessions for community members who want to learn more about how to protect the places you love. 
Our first session of the year, Environmental Justice 101, will provide a history lesson on some of the most important national and state events that led to the current imbalance when it comes to shouldering the burden of environmental pollution. Environmental Justice 101 will explore the history of the environmental justice movement, key events in, in that movement on a national and statewide level, and what living in an environmentally just world means. Speaking on Saturday at 10 a.m. will be Jackie Patterson, director of the NAACP Environmental and Climate Justice Program, and the amazing Tom Fitzgerald, director of the Kentucky Resources Council with Q&A with Liz Mosler from the Kentucky Resources Council and Arnita Gadsden from the West Jefferson County Community Task Force. Future workshops in the series will include uh, gathering information on environmental concerns. That'll be Saturday, July 17th, and advocating for environmental change on Saturday, August 21st. But to learn more and find the link to register for all of these, as well as this Saturday Environmental Justice 101 workshop, go to kyrc.org. That's kyrc.org for the Kentucky Resources Council. Also coming up on Saturday, June 26th, it's the next in the monthly pop-up drop-off free recycling and proper disposal of many different kinds of items. The city does this uh, every month, and this month in June 26th, they'll be out at Sun Valley Ball Field at 10401 Lower River Road from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. There'll be free recycling of electronics, metals and appliances, household recyclables, proper disposal of medications, uh, yard waste collection, on-site paper shredding, and you can even get up to four passenger tires recycled. If you want to learn more, you can download the app that's called the Recycle Coach and uh, just stop on by the Sun Valley Ball Field anytime 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. this coming Saturday, June 26th. Also on Saturday the 26th, it's Birding Walk with Birding Secrets from Passionate Birders out at Bernheim from 8.30 a.m. to 10.30. During quarantine, many of us discovered the joys of birding in our backyards and neighborhoods, but because Bernheim is such an amazing place to learn how to bird or to hone newly acquired birding skills they're providing several birding programs this season you'll find birding programs for beginners intermediate and slightly more advanced birders all programs are conducted outside and will of course include a hike so please dress accordingly registration and payment are due by 4 p.m on friday and you can call 502-955-8512 or register at bernheim.org and lastly want to let you know about the great american camp out taking place this Saturday, June 26th, starting at 5 p.m. through Sunday the 27th at 10 a.m. out at the amazing Jefferson Memorial Forest. I just went camping there this past weekend, and I can definitely attest that it's a wonderful place to go and to explore right here in Louisville still, but you really are out in the wilderness uh, with some amazing views and trails to hike, and it's a, just a great place to bike to, uh, only, uh, you know, 18 miles from downtown, so don't miss out on this great American camp out this Saturday. Jefferson Memorial Forest will join tens of thousands of people across the nation as they camp for a cause. The 14th annual Great American Camp Out is a nationwide event that connects people with the great outdoors. This event is an easy way for friends, family, and children to connect with nature, sleep under the stars, and create memories of outdoor experiences. Jefferson Memorial Forest will provide the campfire, s'mores, and evening activities 
for your family to enjoy. You provide your dinner, breakfast, and tent. In the morning, you will have the day to explore the forest, spend time hiking on any of the 35 miles of trails or fishing at Tom Wallace Lake with free fishing poles provided at the Welcome Center. Reserve your spot today by calling 502 368 5404 for the great American campout coming up this weekend at Jefferson Memorial Forest. And that is all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. I thank you all so much for tuning in, and I look forward to being back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Be well. In the gentle breeze helps me feel the love.